Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The United Nations Millennium Development Goals aim to cut global poverty by half by the year 2015. This is Colleen Shaddix for the Yale Office of Public Affairs. I'm talking with Nicola Harrington, a deputy director for the UN Development Program. She's playing a key role in pursuing those goals and other humanitarian goals through enlisting the support of the European Union. She's currently a World Fellow at Yale University. So, very crassly put, what's in it for Europe? If I'm a European parliamentarian, why should I care about how a subsistence farmer in Haiti is doing? Well, firstly, Colleen, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk. And um, I'm never um, uh, short on ideas of <laughs> wanting to promote the Millennium Development Goals. So thanks for this opportunity. I think the first thing is actually that um, in Europe, there's a very strong public opinion in support of global solidarity. People feel that it's important. And if the citizens feel that it's important, you tend to find that the parliamentarians also respond to that. Mm-hmm. I'd like to say, actually, that that's also the case in the US. Uh, 95% of the US public opinion feels actually that they have a moral responsibility to help other countries in need. But when specifically I'm targeting parliamentarians, I try to go to something that most drives them in their external action, Mm -hmm. and that's the European defence and security policy. Mm -hmm. Since 9-11, but particularly since the war in Iraq in 2003, security has driven that agenda. And what I try to do is use the term human security. So it's not just freedom from fear, it's also freedom from want. And it's the development of other countries that is critical, not only to those countries' stability, but also to regional stability and global stability. In other words, it's in Europe's own interests to invest in the development of other countries. It's also important, actually, that for the European Union, none of its internal issues are purely internal anymore. Mm -hmm. The environment, migration, health, all of them need international action. And I think it's how to help parliamentarians understand not only why it's necessary, but also give them practical options as to what they can do. So does European Union create an opportunity to work more in a concentrated way on bringing up the developing world? Um, I think there's a yes, but. <laughs> an, over, an overwhelming yes, but there's also is a but. Um, firstly, I think that the European project as such has been a huge demonstration effect. It's demonstrated that by working together, a group of countries can not only grow economically, but can also create a stability amongst them and for the region, which is really quite extraordinary. And within that, there are some real success cases. Mm-hmm. Ireland, Spain, they grew in a, in a period of 15, 20 years right. enormously. So that demonstration effect alone is very important. Then the European Union together has a huge array of tools. It has aid, it has trade, it has technology, it has capacity building. Um, And I think they also play a very important role in terms of being able to raise up global standards, international standards, because they're such a big player. The but is the common agricultural policy. Mm -hmm. 47% of the European community budget, not dissimilar from the US, is spent on subsidies. And that is a huge but in the picture. It's not just aid, it's also trade. Let's talk about aid a bit. Uh, A critical part of the Millennium Development Goal strategy is to encourage governments to boost their foreign aid. How difficult does that task become now that Western financial markets are on the skids? 
Well, I think it's a really good question, and actually I was um, particularly concerned to uh, hear one of the vice presidential candidates yesterday right. that one of the first things that would go or that would be an option for cut for cuts is foreign assistance. It strikes me as actually bizarre at a time if, Europe, if America is trying to rebuild its relationships with the world and strengthen its relationships with the world to cut one of the things that most impacts on uh, a large part of the developing world. I think there are two or three aspects within this. One, um, overseas development assistance, the targets are measured as a percentage of gross domestic product. Mm -hmm. If economies are growing uh, more slowly, then already that number looks smaller. But even before the crisis of the last kind of year or so, since the peak of 2005, when overseas development assistance was growing, it has stopped growing. In fact, it actually declined in both 2006 and 2007. And I think that it's beholden upon those who really believe in not just America's, but all of the developed countries' interests in building um, a more equitable world to push um, to avoid um, closing of markets and avoid these temptations to cut the one vulnerable part of the budget, which is external assistance. I think it will come under a lot of pressure. Well, it's interesting. When I heard him say that, I, have, I of course, thought, well, that's an easy thing to say you're going to cut. It's not going to affect voters personally. However, you said 95% of us inc- support increased foreign aid. I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is why is there such a disconnect between public opinion and what um, politicians actually do? Mm-hmm. And why is it that that 95% of uh, public support is not translated in the budget? And you're absolutely right. Across the developed world, the aid budget is always that easy budget adjustment variable. Civil society, organized civil society has a huge role to fight back on that. The Millennium Development Goals are incredibly ambitious. I already mentioned poverty. Um, There's a goal to institute universal primary education, reduce AIDS and malaria. Um, What does the nature of those ambitious goals say about changes in the way that we look at development? Well, I think, again, I mean, it's actually a very, very pertinent question. And I would say, actually, A, it's very important to stress that there has been considerable progress. Yes, they are very ambitious goals. But overall, there is an overwhelming number of countries that are on track to achieve the goals. And I'll come back a little bit in terms Mm -hmm. of some of the dynamics that I think the MDGs have helped with. Um, But I think it's also extremely large regional variations. And you in particular see the lagging of sub-Saharan Africa, which is of huge concern, obviously, because that's where the the largest pockets of poverty uh, lie. But perhaps just to go back to why the MDGs were important. I mean, they were a compact between North and South. I say North and South to be Mm -hmm. shorthand. Um, And this notion of the compact means that it wasn't just about foreign aid going into developing countries. It was also about mobilizing domestic resources within those countries, all for the same set of targets. Um, It came about, I think, as well, because there was a feeling of aid fatigue, that aid wasn't necessarily working. So it was incredibly important to have concrete targets that could be measurable and that could be used both as a mobilization tool for all groups of actors mobilizing around the same efforts, but on the other hand, also hold governments accountable. So that's governments in the north being accountable for ODA and for market access and for debt relief. But it's also actually holding countries in the developing world responsible and accountable for whether they are doing the best for their people. And it is a fantastic mobilization tool within my own organization, the UN Development Programme. We report every year on what is the progress. Mm -hmm. We even report on a sub-regional level. And it's great when you see this information being used by civil society to put pressure on their own local representatives and say, hey, why why and how come the province next door to me is doing better? Mm -hmm. It also, the, the ambitious nature of them suggests to me that you're trying to get 
the developing world to do more than tread water, to actually end poverty, not to just sort of put Band-Aids on gaping wounds. Yeah, I'm really glad that you that you also kind of see it in, in those terms because I think it is precisely designed to kind of move away from kind of fatalistic attitudes um, and also which are not borne out in, in evidence because mm-hmm. the evidence is that very good progress has been made. But it's also there to kind of draw really stark attention to some really terrible facts. Ten million children die before the age of five every year in this world from entirely, absolutely preventable diseases. So we brought three million children out of that situation, but what about the other 10 million? And it's these things, these stark realities that people cannot shy away from and should not shy away from. They have a cost, and the cost is also built into um, Millennium Development Goals strategies at country levels, how to put the money and the budget with very concrete social goals. Now, you spent a good chunk of your career working on the ground for the UN before you were in your current position. So what was it like to move to Brussels to spend your days chatting with policymakers? Must have been quite a change. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it certainly is changing frequency. I think uh, the decision, my choice in moving in that way was because precisely having spent a lot of time in the uh, field, um, just to see the opportunities for making more structural change. And I think particularly in Brussels, there are two aspects that people don't always kind of take into account. One, it is the single largest provider of overseas development assistance. Together, the EU member states and the EU institutions provide more than half of global ODA. And two, for the UN, um, the European Union is an extremely strong promoter of international values and standards, particularly the uh, issue of human rights Mm -hmm. is very, very sacrosanct to the European Union in its own manifestation. And therefore, it also helps to really promote some of those issues internationally. Um, And for us, I think because they're trying to play this role as a policy forerunner, the more that we can help them shape their discussions and the more that we can really act as a resource that they can draw on for impartial advice that is really based on their country realities, the more we're hopefully helping to provoke changes in the overall structure. And how do you think that on-the-ground experience plays into what you do now, makes you more effective? Uh, I think it makes you much more vocal. Um, I think it makes you not let go of issues because you know that these issues really matter because you've seen them on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to think it gives you a kind of a greater weight and credibility in terms of what you're saying. But most importantly, I think it just gives you a phenomenal network of issues, of actors, of people, of countries on which to draw when you're trying to influence the debate. And I see my role very much not to be the voice of all of these other people, but to make sure that that voice is brought to Brussels. If they're doing a public hearing on this, on a particular issue, bring somebody from Ghana to come and have that discussion mm-hmm. with them, to be able to identify the right people. When members of the European Parliament go to these countries, ensure that what they go to see is something which genuinely represents the challenges of that country. So it's all that kind of building of the knowledge of the understanding. And I think it would be very hard to do it if we hadn't seen the reality. I'd also say that that's a little bit what is distinctive about the UN team in Brussels, as opposed to maybe a number of the very, very good policy NGOs that haven't necessarily got that kind of pull mm-hmm. directly back to the field. Tell me a little bit about your experience as a World Fellow. How do you see that affecting your work? Uh, it's intense. It's fascinating. It's privilege. It's such a privilege. And uh, I think that I'm learning every single day from the students as much as from the faculty members and my other fellows. Um, I think I think a lot about what it will what it will do when I kind of go back. And I would say at least at this stage, when we're only partway through, mm. there's probably two or three things. Um, one, uh, who I will talk to 
Um, I've been very um, influenced by a number of the entrepreneurs, the um, people from the media, from the Will Fellows Group, in terms of totally different ways of looking at some issues. Mm -hmm. So that's one point. I think it will widen the prisms through which I see things. Um, one of the uh, classes in School of Management was uh, never accept the first framing of the problem that you're given. And as a leader and as a manager, I want to kind of provoke that. Well, let's look at it through different prisms right. and different problem framing. And uh, one lovely phrase from one of the fellows was failing forward. So I think kind of being more risk taking, mm -hmm. um, but on the understanding that it's not about necessarily always succeeding, but it's about learning from those experiences. Thank you. We've been talking to Nicola Harrington, who's participating in Yale's World Fellows Program for Emerging Leaders Around the Globe. For more information, please visit yale.edu slash worldfellows, Emerging Leaders Around the Globe. For more information, please visit yale.edu slash worldfellows.